Good morning. Well, this day we are beginning a new series of messages on happiness called Living Joyfully. Um, anybody want to live joyfully? Yeah, about four of you. Yeah, that's really great. <laughs> Let's see where this goes. <laughs> Living joyfully. It's a universal quest, isn't it? It's a universal quest. All of us want to be happy. All of us desire to be happy. Uh, when we think about what, just think about what motivates you to do the things that you do in your life. Most often behind that is a desire to be happy. We want to be happy. Uh, Webster defines happiness as a state of well-being. I think you go beyond and in, in, in to say a, a sense of elation or, or to uh, be uh, joyful or emotionally upbeat. I remember talking to a woman uh, a number of years ago and, and everything seemed to be going south in her life and she sat across from me and she poured out her heart about all the challenges and difficulties she had and she looked at me with tears streaming down her face and she said, all I want is to be happy. Is that you? All I want is to be happy in life and, and I'm not finding that. I think we all want that. And even people who commit suicide think that that will bring some happiness or relief to an otherwise miserable life. Well, happiness is more than a desire for us. In fact, our neighbors to the south, when they crafted the uh, Declaration of Independence in 1776, um, enshrined happiness in that document. Here's what it says. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's enshrined in that document. You have a right to be happy and to pursue happiness in your life. We kind of find out that more recently, happiness is kind of in vogue in the uh, 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 psychological uh, field. And in fact, so much so, so that in the 1990s, um, it, there was a, a whole branch of psychology initiated around happiness, and it was called positive psychology. And, and it was to probe the meaning of happiness and how to achieve satisfaction in your life. And so it became a, a discipline within a discipline. Uh, interesting thing, too, there's something called the World Happiness Report. Uh, and it's put out by the Earth Institute uh, from Columbia University. And uh, it, it's interesting uh, that they are seeking to measure the kind of happiness quotient of people in different countries. They have 156 different countries uh, that are, are uh, evaluated on this on the basis of income and life expectancy and social support and freedom and trust. And so they take this and what they do is they measure um, uh, when immigrants uh, come into a community, uh, they, they rate how good that community is. And so, in, um, actually, in, 19, uh, in, in 2018, this current year, 
the number one place in the, in the uh, happiness, uh, the, the world happiness report is, the winner is Norway. Norway, greatest place to live. If you're sick of it here, you should go to Norway because people are really happy there. And um, in fact, uh, we didn't do that badly. We're number seven on the list. So before you, you know, go looking for something else, we got a pretty good place to live in here. Most of us have discovered, though, achieving happiness is not always that easy. Uh, We want happiness. We just have trouble finding it at times. Why is it that even people who have enjoyed fame and, and fortune and success have been so profoundly unhappy that they've even taken their own life and committed suicide. You know, many people can look at our lives and think, you know, you know, I could be happy if. I could be happy if I were more attractive, if I were smarter, if I had more money, I could be happier. If I was married, I could be happier. If I wasn't married, I could be happier. <laughs> if people liked me more. If I had children, I'd be happier. If I had better health or better education or a more satisfying job or or different skills or or abilities or I lived in a different neighborhood or had a different home or, or I lived in another country even. If only I had that, then I could be happy. And somehow it seems to elude us because life is often not all we hoped for and the things that happen that are beyond our control. Life sometimes is not that happy. The question is, how, how, do we, how does this relegate us? Does, does this relegate us to a lifetime of misery that we never find happiness in our life? Do we have to live life with unhappiness and disappointment? Is it really kind of a hopeless quest because you may have been trying for happiness and trying and just didn't achieve it? We have somebody, I think, who can help us in this regard to think through it. Uh, Somebody that can provide some hope for us in this. And I want to talk about learning from the master. Learning from a master. In fact, this guy that I'm talking about writes a letter to some of his friends in a place called Philippi. And he's actually gushing with happiness. He talks about joy and being glad and rejoicing. And in this four short little chapters, he's just, he's just pouring it all out. Uh, the book is a letter to the Philippian church. And the author is a guy by the name that we come to know as the Apostle Paul. Um, and in his circumstance, in writing this letter, he's actually writing from prison. He's awaiting to see what's going to be the outcome of charges against him. And there's a, there's a very real possibility that he'll be executed. And uh, that will be his fate. And yet, strangely, this guy is upbeat. Happiness, joy, gladness, rejoicing. And uh, just by way, too, uh, Al Davey in our own congregation here wrote a book on the Apostle Paul. So you see Al if you want to buy one of his books and just look at this guy's life. But Paul was, uh, was born Saul. He came from Tarsus in Asia Minor. 
He had a great Jewish pedigree. He was a Pharisee. He was part of a conservative religious party, as was his father before him. Uh, He had an excellent education under one of the great rabbis, uh, Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And he was a rising star in Judaism. The problem was he was also an avowed hater of Christians. He was passionately Uh, spiteful of Christians. In fact, he was making it his personal uh, goal to eradicate the Jesus followers from the face of the earth. We're first introduced to him in the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr in the early church. He's being stoned, and as he's being stoned, there's a guy here who's consented to it, and he's holding everybody's cloaks as they kill, stone by stone, this outstanding Christian man. And uh, uh, the next time we confront him, he's heading to Damascus. And he's going there with the express purpose of imprisoning Christ followers. This guy is number one enemy of the church. He had a huge reputation among the Christian community. But as he's going there, he's confronted by the resurrected Jesus Christ who appears in all of his glory in blinding light, and and he falls to the ground, groping around, unable to see, helpless. And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And uh, God would take the greatest enemy of the church and turn him into uh, the greatest missionary, probably, that the church has ever known. But with that came a promise to him uh, that there will be personal struggles, there will be persecution for Christ's sake, and it came in his life in spades. Uh, Even to the point of death as a martyr, he would give his life, and he knew what it was uh, to, to experience so many painful things and indignities. He was shipwrecked several times. Uh, He was beaten. He was lashed several times. He was abandoned by his friends. He was maligned. He was imprisoned and eventually put to death. But in this little letter of four chapters, he is pouring out his heart with joy and gladness and rejoicing. In fact, in the four little chapters, it's about 16 times that I count those expressions of joy and rejoicing. Now, he's not some kind of raging lunatic that has just lost his mind and, and, uh, and is, is lost, real, uh, lost touch with reality. He's in possession of all of his faculties, and yes, well in prison. He's full of joy, and he's well in, uh, qualified to instruct us in this area. So I want to look at... Uh, Paul's joy in relationships in the first 11 verses of the letter to the Philippians. Um, The letters begin, as we discover, um, with one of his great sources of joy, and it was the relationships that he had. The relationships he had really did something for him. And gave him great joy. Paul was connected to people everywhere. If you read his letters, he says, say hello to this one and this one. And I appreciate this one and this, what this one's done. And wherever he went, he had connections. And these people were a great source of joy to him. And so as we start this letter, we want to understand um, 
what, what it was that these people meant to him in his life and how that affected him. Well, any letter, letter starts out with a greeting. And um, Paul has a greeting here for us as well. Uh, you know, we could learn something about how to do a letter and a greeting from uh, the ancient world. Uh, because when you get a letter, I don't know about you, if you get a letter and it's two or three or four pages, what's the first thing you do when you open the letter? You go to the end, don't you? Why? Who's it from? Who's it from? Now, it seems that that's a pretty important thing. I don't know why we leave it to last, but Paul didn't. And here's what he says in verses 1 of 2 of this chapter. He said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins this letter um, talking about, talking to these people that he knew and whom he loved. uh, And and he he was the one who started the church. He went and started this church, and it was such a, a wonderful experience. And I, I give you a, a little hint. I think a lot of people think that this was his favorite church. Now, you know, it's like with your kids. You don't have a favorite, right? Just at times you do, <laughs> depending how they're behaving. But, but he, I think he had a favorite church. And I think it may have been these Philippian believers. And... Um, he had a very warm and wonderful relationship with him. Even though when he went there, um, he was thrown in prison and uh, wrongly beaten and left uh, chained up. And, uh, and yet he loves these people and loves this place. Um, now, when, when we see this, we're told that Paul is writing us. Paul is the guy we've been talking about, this former pers- persecutor, now missionary extraordinaire. And with him is his young protege, a guy by the name of Timothy, his son in the faith, his helper, the guy who traveled with him, the guy who he was helping to form him uh, to be a great servant of Christ. And, and uh, he says, he calls them, Paul and Timothy, his servants. Now, uh, if you look behind this word, the word really means slave. Now, we don't really understand slavery now, but... Uh, a number of years ago, you would have, that slave owner owned that person, excuse me, and the rights to that person. And Paul says, we are are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are owned by him. We just do his bidding. That's who we are. That's what we do. And he's sending it to this church. And he says, uh, I'm sending it to the saints in Christ. Now, a saint isn't a person who died 400 years ago and was purported to have done miracles and so was recognized as a saint. Every person who is a believer is a saint. Saint Lloyd. How do you like that? Saint Winsome. It's got a ring to it, doesn't it? It's a person who's a believer. And you may not be as saintly as you should be, but you're a saint. And when he writes the church, he said, to the saints um, of of Christ Jesus in Philippi and the overseers and the deacons. These are the leaders in the church. And here's here's how he greets them. He says, grace and peace to you. 
And, and when he says this, these aren't just niceties. It's, not, it's just not like saying, hey, how you doing? Hope things are well. Hey, you're great guys or something like that. He says this with full meaning of what these terms mean. Grace, he says, grace, God's favor be upon you. That's my prayer for you. That's what I want for you. And peace, that shalom, that sense of well-being. It's, it's just not being at peace. It's just well-being in all of your life. And those things, he says, uh, come uh, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, he, you know, I, I'm writing to you. I love you. You're special to me. And I want to tell you something. And, and so he has really, over the next verses, 3 to 11, he has a prayer, uh, two prayers. Uh, a prayer of thanksgiving first for the Philippians. When Paul thinks about these people, it warms his heart and it gives him a great sense of joy and thanks to God. He's filled with joy when he thinks about them, when he remembers them, and he gives thanks to God. And so in, um, in uh, verses 3 to 8, here's what it says. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here he is in prison, and he's saying, when I think about you guys, it just warms my heart and brings me such incredible joy. Here he is remembering and thinking, and it causes him to thank God for all God has done for him, for what this group had met for him. He remembers when they, he first went. You see, he was, he was thinking of going um, in, into, into Asia, and when they were ready, that was their plan to go and take the gospel there. And in the midst of this, uh, he had a dream that night. And there was a man in Macedonia saying, come and help us, come and help us. And he saw that as God's directing them away from where they were going. And they were heading into Europe. And the place they go to is to Philippi. And here is this place. And he found that there were a group of people who were, were some of them weren't Jews, but they believed in the Jewish God, and they were, um, didn't have a place to worship, so they're out by a river, and that's where they, they worshipped. And uh, there was a woman there who was a, a businesswoman by the name of Lydia, and, and uh, she was the first person to become a believer. And he's thinking, I, re I remember when Lydia opened her, in fact, the scripture says God opened her heart to the gospel and she received it. And she had, uh, she was, I think, a, a fairly well-to-do lady and the church began to meet in her house and other people became believers. And Paul had this group of people and, and as he thinks about it, uh, he, he is so filled with joy. Their love for Paul, the relationship they had, the willingness to support in prayer and financially, it was a partnership in the gospel, he said. Um, it's a fellow, the word is fellowship. Now, you were instructed that you could go out after the service and find some food there and buy it and have some fellowship with the food. And uh, 
Like, I, I t- that works for me. See, what we think about fellowship is getting together with somebody and, you know, having a good chit-chat and, excuse me, but where's the food? Um, and did somebody bring something to eat? And we think of that as fellowship. But the word fellowship, really, that word had a, a meaning um, deep in, in, in culture and in uh, economics also. In financial terms, it, it was like a business partnership. It was, it was if, if we started a business together, we would be partners in that business. We would be shares. We would have something in common. And when he talks about believers, he said, there's something we share we have this commonality. We're working together in the gospel. And, and we have the same goals and the same commitments. And we love the same Christ. And we're working to accomplish the same purpose. That's fellowship. That's partnership. That's what it means. And, and it, it's, uh, they shared something so closely and so intimately. They were so bound together in Christ. And uh, Paul writes from, Chris, uh, from, from prison, and he says, Every time I think about you, I'm filled with joy, because I remember what we did together when we served together. Uh, from the first visit when he came, to watching them grow and watching them thrive and do well. And he was so encouraged to know that he had confidence that um, the commitment that they had made to Christ that, that that would be okay. He said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, the Lord began something wonderful in you. He'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I know that he's going to bring you all the way home through that. I know that you, you started your faith here, and I've seen you grow, and that's great, but I have confidence that you're going to make it all the way home. Uh, the Lord will care for you in that way. Um, that's what he said. And, and he feels, uh, he, through all the ups and downs uh, of faith, he believes in God's ability to keep them. And he feels so strongly about this. He says, I have you in my heart. Uh, and and I, I have such deep affection for you. And they meant so much to him because they, they'd welcomed him. They welcomed the gospel. They grew in their faith. And when Paul was in need, they sent money in fact, we'll find in chapter 2 that there's a guy from the church heard that they got word that Paul was in prison. And so they sent a representative from their church, Epaphroditus, and he went all the way. And we're not sure exactly where Paul was in prison, but it, it, it may well have been in Rome, which is a long distance away. So they sent one of their own to come and care for Paul's needs and provide, um, to provide uh, money. And uh, he is so deeply connected and so appreciative. And he's sitting in, in prison, this guy having brought that stuff, and he says, I, I am just so full of joy because of you guys, because of our partnership and all that we've done together. There was something so wonderful about what they shared as God's children in love and in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I can't tell you how blessed I feel in my own life to have had people that God has used in our life to help shape us, to guide us, to correct us, to encourage us, um, to, to, to uh, step up when we were uh, struggling. I've had pastors and individuals and prayer partners and, and, and boards and staff and, and uh, 
life groups. And I did put in a, a little plug for our life group. I love our life group and what we have as we gather together and, and share in each other's lives. Uh, I just called a guy uh, last week. He'd been a number of years a board chair in, in our first church. And we had a great uh, relationship. We were we started in a little struggling church, and God began to bless. And, and uh, I said to Ron, remember those days and when God began to bless, and we bought property, and then we, we built a new building, and we saw God working, and we had this saying, we used to say to each other, pinch me. Is God doing all this great stuff? And we, we have that. And so I heard that he'd had, uh, he'd had some surgery, and I, I called him last week. Hey, Ron, how are you doing? What's happening with you? And and then, and then this is his joy of all we shared in serving Christ together. That's what Paul is talking about. I've had the privilege of going several times to India and uh, to minister there um, to churches, but mostly to pastors and to people who were going to become pastors. And um, just, the, just the camaraderie and the closeness we have. When I think about it, I just, he puts a smile on my face and um, one, uh, Gerda was able to go with me one time and every time I've been there I've gone to do some work at the Bible Training Institute training young um, pastors uh, for ben- uh, Bengali speaking churches in, in one of the greatest uh, needs uh, for, uh, for Christianity in the world and uh, you know I told Gerda what it's like and, uh, but, but until she got there she didn't know and uh, had a very warm and close relationship with the principal. And so uh, our driver brought us uh, from where we were to the Bible Training Institute. And here was the principal, and here were the teachers and several of the students waiting for us to come. And as we came, you, you would have thought it was the, you know, the Queen of England. Uh, you know, the people, you know, cheering and hugging us and so glad to see us. And... The Apostle Paul talks about what it's like to have that kind of fellowship in, in, in prison. He just begins smiling and there's this deep sense of joy in what Christ has done. Man, oh man. It causes his heart to sing. And it should work that way for us too. Incredible joy in the relationships that we share in the gospel with others. Let me ask you, do you have those kind of relationships in your life? And and I know as a guy so often, maybe we don't have that that kind of closeness with other guys at times. But, But do you have that kind of relationship? that you have help and encouragement for somebody and you've worked together and, and, and you've seen God move together and you're thinking, oh man, this is so great. I love these brothers and sisters with whom I share. And in tough times, I, it just brings a smile to my face. Or are you thinking of choosing a life's partner? And, and you're thinking, what kind of a person should I choose? I, I need to choose somebody that I could be in partnership in the gospel, I need somebody, if I'm committed to Jesus Christ and following in him and him being central in my life that guides and directs me, as we talked about worship, that worship is, is responding to God with the totality of my being. I need to find a person who feels that way also. I can't take somebody who's not a believer, as wonderful as those people are. I need somebody that shares with me in the priority of the gospel and the things of God. 
That's the most crucial partnership uh, that God can give you. And, and I want to encourage you, if, if you want to be married and you're maybe looking for a life's mate, find somebody that can share in the gospel with you. Well, Paul's prayer, uh, secondly, is a prayer for, uh, uh, of request for the Phil- Philippians. In verses uh, 9 to 11, he expresses his joy in prayer. And he has two requests. The first one is uh, in verse 9. And he says, this is, my, uh, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. He said, I want you to love more. I pray for you. I've seen how, how God has worked in you, and I'm praying for you, and this is what I'm praying. God, help them to love more and more and more and more. He sets that out as something very important. He wanted them to grow and to flourish in loving others. Certainly, Paul saw the church as loving because they were so kind and gracious to him. But that love, um, that love was a signal mark of a believer. Do you remember when Jesus said, Everyone will know you're my followers if you love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. And in 1 John 4, it says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It's kind of a a litmus test. Are you really a believer? Are you a loving person? Do you love and care for the body of Christ? Now, but this love is not some kind of weak, sentimental, gushy, mushy feeling thing. There's nothing wrong with with feelings. This is a hard and fast commitment to do what is right and to do what's best. He says he calls them to grow uh, in knowledge and depth of insight. It's not just a warm feeling, although he certainly had that, but it was a depth of insight. There's a moral element to love. There's right and wrong. There's truth and falsehood. And, and, And there were times when you have to have discernment and decide and, and, and understand in issues what's right and what's wrong. Love isn't just acquiescing and, and bowing to anything and doing anything. Love has moral boundaries as well. It's not just glossing over sin and, and wrong. But love each other sacrificially as Jesus has loved us. Let me ask you, how's your love life? I'm not talking about you and your wife or your girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm talking about how is the expression of Christ's love in you touching others around you? Paul says, I want you to grow in love. As, as much as you're loving, there were some problems in this church. It's a wonderful church, but there were some issues and problems that he has to address too. And he wants to see them grow in that love and care for others, encouraging them, helping them through... And the thing is that that knowledge and insight was not to be an end in and of itself. Because his second request is this. It was a prayer for discernment. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, I pray all this so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. That's what he wanted. He wanted these folks uh, to have discernment, to understand, to be able to understand what is best, what is right, what is appropriate. He said, I want you to be able to approve what's excellent so you can be pure and blameless 
for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's his goal, that we would live in a righteous way. And to do that, we need discernment. We need to know what's harmful and what's good. Sometimes we we don't understand how insidious some things are and how harmful. We, we just haven't picked up on that. And, and uh, he said, I want you to have that kind of discernment so that you know how to live and that how you live will reflect um, righteousness, what is right in God's eyes. And um, this isn't just achieved by trying harder and harder and harder. He said it comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As he leads you, as he guides you, you'll have that discernment and you'll live a, a, a righteous life. Uh, do you have that kind of discernment? See, what we do week after week after week as we teach the word of God, we give you an opportunity to understand God's word, to give you discernment, to give you wisdom, to help you chart a proper course in life. And, and that's exactly what Paul wanted for them. Paul prays for them, and as he prays for them, his heart is just bursting with joy. He loves those people. He's shared so much with those people, and he wants them to love others and to live rightly. How well are you connected in partnership? Um, And again, I'm going to make a plug for life groups. If you're not connected, that's a place where you can start to get connected with others around the good news of Jesus. For Paul sitting in prison and, uh, and uh, feeling maybe sorry for himself or, or something like that wasn't his thing. It, his friends warmed his heart. His friends brought a smile to his face. And, uh, and that's my prayer for us. That when we're pursuing uh, happiness, when we, we want it desperately, one of the good places to start is connecting ourselves to other believers and, and finding uh, strength and joy in that relationship, help and encouragement, and to become the people that he wants us to become brings great joy. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward at this time, please. And the servers... We're going to be sharing communion. The heart of the gospel is that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. There are different aspects to communion. Communion is an act of remembering God. It's an act of saying thank you to him. It's an act of saying we'll commit ourselves to him. But it's also an act of fellowship. The very word communion is the word fellowship. It's a sharing. It's what we share together as the people of God, as the body of Christ, at this table when Jesus himself hosts this and invites us to come as his guests, to remember him, to share with him, to be touched by him, to thank him, to honor him, to commit ourselves to him. And and it's interesting uh, to see 
in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, in verse 16, it says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship, that word, a communion in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And he's talking about two things. He's talking about the body of Christ that was offered for us. But he's also talking about us who are the body of Christ. Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. It speaks of our unity in him. And so we, we prepare ourselves uh, to share in communion. We are deeply connected as God's children. As we come to remember him, we come to remember each other. That's why the Apostle Paul was so hard and down on, um, on uh, the Corinthian believers because they came in, they made a sham of communion. Some of them gorged and had a lot. Others had nothing and they were left out and they didn't care for the body of Christ. I tell you what, Paul thought, man, the body of Christ, it brings me so much joy. And here we have joy as we gather together at this table to remember him, uh, to fellowship with him. And uh, so we're going to prepare ourselves for communion and... um, we're going to uh, distribute these emblems and uh, uh, you'll be invited to come forward, come out the right side of your aisle and uh, come back around and, and in the left side. And uh, we'll, there'll be people up here who will uh, have the emblems for you to take back. If you can't get up uh, with mobility issues, we'll bring it to you, don't worry. And, uh, and while we do that, would you listen to the words of the song that will be sung? I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. Embrace the cross where Jesus suffered. Though it will cost all you think is yours. Your sacrifice will seem small beside the treasure. Eternity can't measure what Jesus holds in store. Embrace the love 
the cross requires cling to the one whose heart knew every pain receive from Jesus fountains of compassion only he can fashion a heart to move as his oh wondrous cross our desire is in you Lord Jesus make us bolder to face with courage the shame and disgrace you bore upon your shoulders embrace the life that comes from dying Come trace the steps our Savior walked for you. The empty tomb concludes the path of sorrow. Endure until tomorrow your cross of suffering. Embrace the cross. Embrace the cross, the cross of Jesus.